Hello, and welcome to Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and the thing that would be deeply wrong with me if I had been alive for 10,000 years is that I probably would have spent most of it in a cave, uh, not talking to anybody, and so I would just be, you know, a witch, probably cursing people from inside there. Slightly different from mine. Um, I'm Kristen, and <laughs> if I was alive for 10,000 years, the thing that would be deeply wrong with me is that I would have watched 10,000 years of bad teen dramas, and mm. uh, nobody needs that in their life. Well, you know, my name is Taz. I don't think there's anything wrong with the previous two answers, but I'd have 10,000 years of collection of really crummy comedy mugs. <laughs> so really, that's my problem, nobody else's. You're going to have to get a, a couple of different buildings to hold on to them. Yeah, uh, I think, frankly, a couple of different continents. <laughs> well, hey, if you've got, you know, the continents to store them, might as well, right? Well, a big welcome to Tamsin Muir, the author of Gideon the Ninth, Hera the Ninth, and the newest book in the series, Nona the Ninth. Tell us about the Locked Tomb series. Uh, well, Kiora, <laughs> lovely to be here. And you know what? I always steal the answer to this question off Charlie Stross because it's lesbian necromancers in space. <laughs> and then I'm just like, okay. That's it. I don't have to describe anything else. Even though it's not entirely accurate, it's also lesbian swordswomen in space. And, uh, like, yeah, again, that's that's all I'm going to offer to this. Honestly, it's an excellent tagline because it's the thing that made me buy the books. Um, so well done to uh, the person who came up with that. I love that books, like, we, no book is ever true to its tagline or its, like elevator pitch mm -hmm. ever and I would say like especially with these ones because they're so nuanced and and big world and like I love that it really can be boiled down to lesbian necromancers in space though and mm. a couple of people have come up to me and like you know I'm really sorry you use that because it's so much more than that and I'm like there can be nothing more than lesbian necromancers <laughs> in space that's where I'm at you know like uh, do not insult me yeah, we're not asking <laughs> for more <laughs> So both of us are, are authors as well, and one of the things that both of us noticed as we were reading these books, um, Kristen was the one who picked it up first and was like, you have to read this, was the unconventional structure, both with the voice in the second book and the like non-consecutive timeline. So what what went into that? We'd love to know more about how you came up with that or like, why did you go that direction? I love it. I wish I had a really intellectual answer for this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the truth is I simply didn't see it as that unconventional at the time. Yeah. You know, the truth is that there are so many books, especially in SFF, that work with non-consecutive timelines. So I'm just taking my cue from them. And, you know, in the second book, I use what looks like on the surface mixed third person and second person. And second person is a little bit more unusual, a little bit more of a way to get readers to throw your book across the room, <laughs> you know, uh, because it can be done well if your name is Calvino, my name is not Calvino. But, you know, I just didn't see anything wrong with it at the time. I get, you know, it's not even a matter of ego. It's just a matter of naivete. <laughs> I was just like, well, this will be fun. And then a whole lot of people were like, I cannot believe you made me read so much of this. So I think that the way it came about was simply me being like, well, this is normal. This is fine. <laughs> um, so pure uh, rabid innocence. That's awesome. Well, and I love that there's, I mean, I feel like people try to use um, unconventional structure to like push the envelope and be exciting and whatever, but there's justification for everything that happens in your books. Mm -hmm. And so it totally makes sense that it would be that way. And I, I love that, that it's not just because. Well, 
I mean, my initial reaction when I started Harrow was, first of all, anger about a certain event at the end of Gideon. <laughs> um, but, but I don't know. The second person really, it, there's something awesome about how it works on on multiple levels where before I understood what was actually happening, I was like, oh, yeah, trauma. This makes sense. And and by the end, you had me cheering yeah, I mean, that's good. Sharing is the reaction I want. And, you know, that's good to hear because, you know, there were a couple of ways I could have gone on into Harrow. I experimented with a couple of them and second voice was absolutely correct for what I was wanting yeah. to do. And it did end up working on all of those levels that you've just mentioned. Hopefully it just felt correct to me so yeah I did experiment a little bit but I was the one who had to make that stupid choice so you know the fault is mine <laughs> so because a lot of our audience are are authors who are, who are trying to write their own books do you have any tips for people who are attempting this kind of thing you said that you went into it not thinking it was weird but when you were in the middle of it how did you uh deal with it or how did you how did you handle it do you have any tips for people who are attempting something like that Oh, by the middle of it, I was okay because I'd gotten into the swing of it. Mm -hmm. I think that people should just be unselfconscious. I think that, you know, way too many authors hold themselves back by thinking, oh, there's nothing else like this on the market or, you know, people won't want to try hard. You know, I think we actually think a little bit too much about readers when we're writing. And, you know, you have to think about the reader. But at the same time, think about yourself first. What's fun? What feels right? If it feels right, don't stop it just because you think, well, I don't know how to market this. Mm. You know, it's a case where if you want to do it, you know, put those blinders on it. Don't think about anyone else, especially not the market. That's an excellent piece of advice. So hard, yeah. though. But yes, absolutely. Especially when you're trying to convince an editor also to put those <laughs> blinders on. Yes, I mean, I was really lucky in that I had softened up my editor by this point. You know, uh, try it on your editors the second thing, you know, uh, maybe not the first thing. So something I really love about the Locked Tomb series is how much it seems to be a story that engages with how we tell stories. I, I mean, we get a lot of it in Harrow, but in Nona, actually, there's a lot about God, I guess. I'm not going to get too spoilerly, but I'll just say that I think everybody who's who has read these understands that God is a bit of a jerk. <laughs> um, and I'm so curious about, like, from the beginning, did you know that this was going to be a sort of a meta narrative? At what point did you decide to start pulling that in, I guess? And how did you even approach doing that? I, I feel like I tend to get lost in the meta aspects. Oh, I mean, I do too. I was like, oh no, meta narrative. This is post structuralist. Yeah. I, I definitely didn't go in being like, well, here's what I think about post structuralism. I mean, you know, the truth is that I think that if you go into a story being like, wow, I'm definitely going to write about this thematic, I'm going to have this big overarching idea, you are setting yourself up for failure. Mm -hmm. I think that you have to think about the story first and you know the themes and the things that you're interested in they'll express themselves in the story but if you go in with like here's my meta narrative idea and i mean again if you're telling a story about telling stories you know okay one thing wow you're about to get lost in telling some stories so i can tell stories while i tell stories like uh here we go but i think it's a case where it's not that it's pretentious going in with the idea. I think it's very laudable, but you're going to get lost in the weeds, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So is that something that you wrote the story first and then you saw the pieces together and then connected them and you went back and edited them together? And so it's not something you should ever worry about on a first draft, it sounds like? 
Well, I mean, uh, you assume I've pieced the pieces together. I honestly <laughs> haven't. You know, it's a case where when I came up with the story, you know, you come up with the story, you come up with the structure you want to hang it on. And again, I think I really benefited from not thinking about a lot of the received wisdom and writing advice. Like, all right, here's the three-act structure you've got to follow. I was just like, you know, my structure will look like whatever it looks like. But, you know, I've been incredibly privileged by the fact that I know and have known since the beginning what every single piece of these books looks like and is. Mm -hmm. um, I know that some authors who are more of the like the gardening style, who are more of the exploratory style, they actually write their way into the story, whereas I'm incredibly a control freak. Like, I can't do that. That's just, uh, That's not something... I like to do. I can't go down a dark alley. When I was planning the story, I already knew what the ending was going to be. So I already had a clear place I was going to. And I think that some of the interesting thematic echoes have simply come out out of that with me being able to recognize it without me having to seed them in deliberately. Okay, so then switching my question, how do you outline? Because uh, for some of us, Caitlin and me, outlines outlining is hellish and I, uh, I struggle with it so do you do you make like a full just like a full everything here's an outline do you do like the note card thing I, I'm just really curious about how that works no I'm totally on board with you both outlining is hellish yeah um you know I did start out with an outline for Gideon and the overarching series it's about three paragraphs long oh jeez <laughs> yeah well I mean some of it is now completely uh, not the case in the books because I had a little note in there in Byro being like Gideon's a fireman. Gideon's not a fireman. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Um, I mean, there's a lot I could probably be thinking about because it just sounds weirdly like, oh yeah, sexy fireman. <laughs> you know, when it came to outlining, I outlined the sort of the structure of the series. You know, where I wanted to end up to, kind of like the stock characters i didn't do this thing that some people do it sounds like you guys don't do it either where you have a whole encyclopedia like here's the entire psychological profile of my main two characters <laughs> i admire people who do that but i'm like nah that, that ain't me <laughs> but when you have where your story needs to go i found it actually pretty natural to just go into it and let it let the characterization unfold via what i needed you know, that sounds incredibly woolly for somebody who just claimed that, you know, she was very much a control freak. <laughs> but it's not a case where I was like, okay, here's my seven page outline. I didn't end up having to spreadsheet. Do you guys end up spreadsheeting like while you're writing? I do. I end up having to like go back and know like whatever it was that I already wrote. I'm like, okay, I have to remember that I wrote these things and what comes next. Yeah, I'm a little more yeah. chaotic. I have just a lot of notes in my notes app. So <laughs> that, that's that what I go very yeah. That's why I don't understand people who have like physical postcards because I'm just like, whoa, I would lose those in the first yeah. five seconds, eh? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. There goes the middle of my book, like somewhere <laughs> under the sofa or wherever I have it vacuumed lately. Good luck finding it. Yeah. yeah. Ever. So once you have all of those complex relationships, how do you go about like after you have the basis of it, how do you go about making that fit into your plot narrative? Like, do you just keep going and you keep track of yourself and then you keep making things grow or? You know, in terms of relationships, that's not something I've ever really had a problem with. You know, especially once you know where things have to end up. Okay. A relationship is its own mini plot and it's, own, you know, requires its own miniature structure. 
you know, probably the genre that's best at this is romance. So I just give the thumbs up to all those romance writers who must do this kind of innately. I I don't have that innate sense of it. I think that, you know, believability is important, keeping things consistent. You know, everything does have to change, but you don't want things to change either at a breakneck pace or never. And I think that when you are writing something very character-driven, a lot of it is going to live or die based on whether or not people can you don't necessarily enjoy the relationships, but see them as something real. And I know that's not something that actually SFF is always focused on. Often the characters are just ciphers and the relationships are not that important. I think that's actually something that's relatively, I was about to say relatively new, but that is kind of uh, really unfair to all of the character-driven relationship-driven SFF that there is. But it is something that we're focusing on more than we used to. I think it's something you actually do spectacularly. I, I mean, well, just <laughs> at the heart of these books are relationships and love and what exactly that means and what happens when that gets really screwed up. And, and I'm really impressed because you've written characters that I know if I read anywhere else, I would absolutely despise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's, I, I just think there's an art to, to making characters like that. So there, there's, as I'm sure you know, some debate. Uh, clearly what characters, some of these characters have with each other is absolutely not platonic but I'm just curious about like when you are crafting these relationships I know you have an end in mind but like are you thinking about how people are reading them how how much editing do you have to do in the back end to make sure that like you're not overdoing it or underdoing it if that makes sense the most wonderful thing you ever could have told me is that you despise a lot of my characters (laughs) Um, that's wonderful to me because the truth is I actually think that editing in this day and age is not always the greatest instinct or at least you have to think about why you're doing it because i think that one of the most terrifying things in the world is the review you can get where people like oh i just didn't really connect to these characters Mm -hmm. i didn't really like them and that makes it hard because sometimes you don't want to connect to these characters and you really don't want people to write them and that is an act of bravery i think especially when you are writing you know, female-coded characters, we get this instinct that they have to be everything to everybody. Mm -hmm. And even if they are bad or despicable, you know, okay, am I going to make them wholly bad and wholly despicable? Or am I going to make them kind of like, oh, maybe you could redeem them one day, but should they also be likable while they're despicable? Mm -hmm. You know, you can tie yourself in absolute knots. And one thing that was really important to me was throwing all of that out the window and just being like, I'm just going to make characters who suck, who are <laughs> screwed up, who are screwed up with each other, who do irredeemable things. Because, you know, boy, femme characters and femme spec characters mm-hmm. judge totally differently than male ones. Yeah. And I think that comes back to your point about relationships, you know, what's believable, what's what's platonic, what's not. And we give a hell of a lot more leeway to guys who can just go out and do a casual Tuesday genocide. And it's like, oh, well, they're still very hunky. And, <laughs> and female characters who, you know, can kind of take the teeniest, weeniest bit of candy from a baby. And it's like, well, okay. <laughs> That's an excellent point. And I, I think you've mentioned in the past about how Ianthe in, in particular fits the Draco and leather pants trope, which I... She is a character I despise, but I love despising her. So yeah, I maybe it shouldn't have felt refreshing to me because I know there are lots of other books that do it well, but it was just really nice to have a bunch of characters who are women or female presenting and who are just messy. 
Yeah, and I mean, I have taken my inspiration from those books. There are so many characters, you know, especially that I read as a kid Mm -hmm. who got to be women, Mm -hmm. but who also got to suck. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I actually think that we're kind of moving away from women who get to suck. And that's very limiting. And especially as a writer, you know, I know a lot of, you know, my author friends who just sort of sit there kind of panicking, like, I want to make this female or female coded character suck as much as humanly possible. And then they're like, oh, man, I probably shouldn't, though, because, again, the market. And that's the first thing I'm going to hear. People can't connect to it. And I'm, oh, that's heartbreaking, right? Just let us write sucky people. (laughs) Yeah, there are clearly people who want to read about that. Absolutely. I'm one of them. I'm writing (laughs) for me as much as anything else. I'm going to change topics really quick because this is something I've always been very curious about. When you started writing, how many bone-related words did you have to look up on average per writing session? Uh, And if the answer is none, why are you lying to us? (laughs) Because... I, I get having like a big voca- like a lot of the words you use are big but like I'd encountered them but the word the bone related stuff I was like pulling out my dictionary every couple pages <laughs> okay so in my excuse I was a very weird child and you know for some reason um, I had the Merck manual as a kid and also a couple of uh, Grey's Anatomies and medical books in general And this was the kind of thing I would read. You know, I was just a very boring, very horrible child. (laughs) And I don't know. I always have had this fascination with the body, but not in a, oh, cool, I'm going to become a doctor way. I was never going to become a doctor. I dropped out of high school. But in a way where I was sort of terrified about all the different things that could go wrong with the body. You grow up with the Merck manual. You are just aware about all the ways in which your liver is going to betray you. (laughs) So those are words that I'd already come across. I already knew, you know, I did have to go back and double check to make sure that I wasn't making too many egregious mistakes. I can think of at least three egregious bone mistakes I have made, but I'm not going to tell you what they are because you have to go looking for them. (laughs) But It was a case where it was just an innate interest I'd already had expressing itself in a horrible way. And I mean, I guess that means that Gideon was training wheels because it's like, okay, what horrible child knowledge can I leverage? Ooh, (laughs) diseases. Nope, that actually, that all tracks. That completely explains the existence of the series. (laughs) This isn't something that I keyed into because I'm not, I'm old, I guess, and don't know anything about memes. But Kristen, when she was reading it, she mentioned that there are a lot of things that tie back to meme culture. So why why was that a decision that you made? Oh, I made it for so many reasons. Some of them are actually in-universe. And, you know, I think that these books are very referential, not simply on a meme level. Mm -hmm. I think it's just that the memes are the ones that make you want to throw the book across the room, as well as everything else I'm doing that makes (laughs) you want to throw it across the room. And... It's interesting because you also have to look at what types of memes I'm using. Old memes. I'm really old. These memes were pulled out of Tar Pit. All the hip kids won't be getting them. These memes are antique and they are past their sell-by date. So I think it's in some ways more accurate to say memes from a period of the internet and Tumblr that was old in 2014. Nunhouse with Mm -hmm. Left Grief made me... It took me out. It was incredible in like the best way where I was like, I cannot believe I just read that. See, that one in particular, 
I tried to make it so that if you didn't know Nun Pizza with Left Beef, mm-hmm. as obviously we all know here, we all know the Nun Pizza with Left Beef, uh, you know, possibly not on purpose, but we know it now. <laughs> you know, a lot of people who didn't know that meme would just be like, this is slightly weird wording. But especially with the character who uses Nun Houses with Left Beef, yeah. he is using it purposefully in a really hideous way that I think that we will know more about by the end of the series. But it's also undeniable that sometimes there are memes and references in these books that are just there to be read. And I mean, you know, you've got memes. I chuck in a lot of Shakespeare, you know, simply because, again, uh, I think I wasn't traumatized enough teaching Shakespeare Mm -hmm. as a teacher. A lot of poetry, you know, the Bible. The Bible is just downloaded into this book. You know, there is way too much Bible. Bible and memes. And, you know, a lot of, you know, Greek tragedy. There's a lot of stuff. It's a very Catholic taste Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, it's from all over the spectrum. And it's really interesting to me what infuriates people or what people enjoy and what they don't. That's a really good point because no one bats an eye if you're making a biblical illusion, but when suddenly now it's a Tumblr illusion, it it's very different. It's about what you bring. If you think that Tumblr memes are kind of trite and stupid and, you know, uh, irreverent, especially, I think that's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. People bring to these books like, why did you put that in? Why did you make your book anachronistic? you know, the moment I read it, you know, but, and yet the Shakespeare is fine because I mean, the truth is we never know when things are going to age badly. Mm -hmm. Like 20 years ago, if you had put in a reference to the William Carlos Williams poem, you know, uh, I've just eaten all your goddamn plums, Uh direct, direct quote, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, that would have been like, wow, so sophisticated. What a bona fide, uh, you know, literary illusion. That's amazing. Insightful. Now people are going to be like, lol, it's the plum meme. Exactly. (laughs) It has actually managed to degrade in terms of cultural capital. It's now the stupid ass plum meme. We never know when the things we put in are going to become the plum meme. Mm -hmm. That's That's a great point. Yeah, thank you. I think I want that on a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. It can be one of your, like, comedy mugs yes, that you're collecting. Yes, so fantastic. One of my uh, 10,000 years worth of comedy mugs. Yes. <laughs> I will say in Nona, we see fewer memes, but not zero memes. And the one at the very end, I think you know what I'm talking about, made me very happy. So happy. Nobody's commented on that yet. So you were the first. So that makes Woo! me, that makes I'll my heart it. smile. <laughs> okay, good. So I did want to ask about, and maybe we already covered this a little bit, how do you navigate the competing tones of like the fun Tumblr meme or even, I mean, in the light of us talking about it, maybe it's not necessarily well, fun. all of your In humor. a moment with extremely, yeah. yeah, it's great. Like it's it's never like reverent or trying to take anything extremely seriously. How do you How do you navigate that with the extremely high stakes and consequences that are happening in this book? By being Kiwi, it's Kiwi humor. I mean, it, it can competes if you want it to compete i think the problem is that we're not actually used to tone shifts in in sff a lot you know we either want our books to be deadly serious or we want them to highlight that they're going to be humorous Mm -hmm. and we sort of get very uncomfortable when that line blurs and becomes liminal and i admit i love that discomfort i love living in that discomfort because for everyone who's like well this book offended me because it had a tumblr meme in it and a, a very important scene I'm like, well, you just got New Zealanded, you know? <laughs> Again, I think it is cultural. And I think I have enjoyed so many Kiwi, uh, you know, comedians. Mm-hmm. And I think that 
you know, especially in America, you guys have taken to them magnificently, like Flight of the Concords. Mm-hmm. I felt like they softened you guys up for my book. So thanks, guys. <laughs> That's really funny. I feel like I got the Kiwi sense extra in Nona, like, uh, especially in the, the interlude chapters. There were things where I was like, I can't hear this in any accent other than a Kiwi accent. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We loved chatting about this. And we're so excited for Nona to come out so everybody else gets to read it and we can finally talk to them about it. I've been (laughs) quietly dying over here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To all of our listeners, please be sure to check out Nona the Ninth. If you haven't read Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth, where have you been? Please start now. Our next guest will be Marissa Meyer, the author of the Lunar Chronicles, the Renegades Trilogy, and the Gilded Duology. Please check out the special editions we're doing for her in our store. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 